Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Gabriella. I'm stepping in for Dina this week, and I'm very excited to be talking to Toyan Harper about re-entry and rebuilding family rituals. Um, So TJ is a lecturer and doctoral student at the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy and Practice at the University of Chicago. Hi, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, And, you know, just wanted to take a pause and give a shout out to whoever created that jingle. I really like that as I was sort of proving with it. I know. I really liked that. It's a bit different from my usual jingle. Um, I usually host a different show. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. This might, might be my favorite jingle. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to get to know you a bit better. Um, do you mind introducing yourself? I am happy to. Uh, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, so I like to consider myself a, a, a lifelong resident, even though I've lived in several other places now outside of Chicago. I've lived in uh, Boston for a couple of years, uh, doing some work with the Southern New England uh, United Church of Christ as an associate for justice ministries, uh, where I was able to help build sanctuary churches and refugee welcoming churches and lead uh, really critical trainings on anti-racism, a curriculum for the United Church of Christ. And after doing that work for some time, I decided that I wanted to be closer to my family uh, as I didn't really have community in Boston and didn't really know that many people. So there was a time where I said, I have to get to Chicago to sort of where my roots are and how I go, what am I going to do? You know, once I get back to Chicago and that's how I decided to attend graduate school because uh, I was in this place of uncertainty. Um, and I said, I don't know what the next natural step is. So I just knew that I would attend graduate school in Chicago just to get me, <laughs> just to get me to my family piece. Um, so at, at that point I enrolled at the University of Chicago in a master's program of social uh, policy and social work. And you know, everyone was telling me, like, you know, oh, I think you'd be a really great fit uh, to be a doctoral student and go on and get your PhD and do some awesome things. And I never really have considered such a thought, and I didn't think that I'd like to uh, be at school for so long. But I was sort of uh, coerced into, <laughs> into this process. So uh, now here we are, like this five years later into the journey where I'm almost done. Uh, Sue, they don't uh, kick me out of her university. And this time, I've gotten the opportunity to do some really uh, engaging and and meaningful research with some of the uh, leaders of the field and criminology and sociology and social work. So, yeah, it's been an all around really great experience. Wow, so that's a very Interesting, interesting. Um, I, I love sort of where your work has brought you um, and how it brought you back home without, um, I guess, knowing what to do, but it's um, found you what sounds like a really great area of work and really interesting and really needed as well. Um, and soon we'll be able to call you doctor, I guess. <laughs> I hope to get to you a called TJ, but, yeah. but in theory, yes. Yeah, great. Um, we'll have to get you back on then and we'll introduce you as Dr. TJ. Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, so, um, and yeah, five years is a long time. So yeah, congratulations on almost um, finishing. Thank you. Yes, it's um, it's probably, it's coming within another year or two years of, than that, mm-hmm. you know, on to the next sort of chapter. 
Good luck with that. Um, so we're going to move on to a section called um, Have You Met TJ? And that's where we um, get you to say the first thing that comes to your mind uh, when we say um, a few words. So our first word is genre. Action. Uh-huh. Um, is that like a favorite movie genre that you have? I think so. If I'm thinking about movies, um, if I'm thinking about books, I probably would have gone with, you know, historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any um, favorite uh, favorite books in that historical fiction? Yeah, there's the uh, Pen Cage series, uh, which talks mm -hmm. about, uh, and, and there's some really good books in that series, such as uh, The Bone Tree or Natchez Burning. Uh, is a really good uh, series of books that were written about the 1950s, 1960s uh, era in uh, Natchez, Mississippi, and sort of the civil rights movement and uh, social uprising that occurred in, in those uh, geographic. Interesting. I haven't heard of that series. Um, I don't read a lot of historical fiction, so maybe I'm going to have to uh, have a look at that. I always do like broadening my my uh, reading um, reading lists. It's um, a really good series, yes. Good, good. Um, and what about for movies? You... That's a tough question. Um, I, I generally like a wide range of movies. I, I said action immediately because I think it's probably my uh, or I find myself watching most movies with things are sort of going on. But it would be hard to narrow down on some of my favorite. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fair enough. It's like asking me what my favorite book is. I couldn't. I couldn't really pick one. Absolutely the, the same. I, I guess what I, 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 one caveat is probably that I love almost all uh, Denzel Washington movies. He's my mm -hmm. favorite actor. Uh, I think he's phenomenal. It looks really great to be in his seventies now. Uh, you know, and it's like the Equalizer 3 is coming out, and I'm really excited to see that movie. And it's sort of an action genre. Gosh, action when you're 70. I don't think my body can cope <laughs> now. Um, yeah, great. And uh, what about podcasts? Do you listen to any? Uh, there's a podcast that the university runs actually called the Big Brains Podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. And they just, you know, interview a lot of um, intellectuals and philosophers and, uh, you know, writers. And I, I really am inspired by that because that's not sort of any of the vibes that I'm with, <laughs> you know, in terms of these really uh, brilliant big thinkers and, you know, artists. And so I, I do really enjoy that. Um, there's another pro podcast, uh, True Crime is a really interesting podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean, other than being about true crime, like what specifically uh, do they talk about or what do they look about look at? Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually sort of getting into, you know, cases that have existed and then sort of walking through like different um, sort of sayings and scripts with people about, you know, how these crimes are solved or, you know, sort of what, what rots. So it, it really gets into a lot of the details that I think is, is cool. And also the... Uh, hypothetical situations that it can be offered. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, interesting. I'd have to have a look at that. Um, and do you have a famous role model? A famous role model? Uh, now, that is a question that I'm not sure. I probably... I do know that I'm a famous role model. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, do you have just a role model who isn't necessarily famous? It, it's probably cliche, but I would say my mother. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my mother is just such a phenomenal person at New York Bay. Uh, and, you know, she really, you know, took care of my brother and I growing up. She was a single parent for a long time and worked multiple jobs. Like, so she's always been my role model because I didn't know a little bit about her sort of support, love, caring guidance. Like, you know, I would just not getting where close to bringing anybody or importance. I think it, it, um, have, you know, your parents, your mom, it's often, you know, um, a person who does come up as a role model, but I think with good reason, you know, we wouldn't be here without our parents. Um, and often they are very inspiring because, you know, they've managed to bring you up with maybe, um, some hardships, um, 
and you know, and they're still here. They're still sticking around with you, hopefully, um, and helping you even as you age. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what about a course that you've completed? Have there been any that have you know stood out? Yes, um, there have been. I've had the the pleasure of taking some really interesting classes. Um, I'm trying to think of what's the art. It seems like it's been a while for some of them. I, I took a class a, a long time ago on postmodern literature and imaginative thinking. Um, Interesting. And this class, we pretty much read like a different book each week. Uh, and sort of analyzed the book and we were talking about it. And it felt like um, like Dead Poet Society. I'm not sure if you've seen that movie uh, or, or read the book, but it it just felt like very sacred, like getting together in this class to like do this thing. Yeah, we, or, or or in like a larger book club that even though we were required to take this class, um, like everyone wanted to be there, which is, you know, sort of unusual. We think about like, I just finished taking like the statistics sequence and you know no one wanted to be there but it still was a great class of course but it, it just had a, a very different view with mm -hmm. i mean i think there's a reason why we read books for pleasure and you know doing be able to do that in class um yeah it sounds really fun and that's the kind of thing i want to do one day just take a class just because um it sounds fun and um yeah, the, the name of that class sounds very fancy. Postmodern literature, was it? Yes, postmodern literature and uh, imaginative thinking, I believe. Uh, That's such a cool it, title. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was really a great class. So mm -hmm. great. Um, so we'll move on to our interview now. Um, so I like to start off with few uh, definitions so that um, we start off with a good base um, so we know where we're starting uh, so we know I guess some of the definitions and what we're going to be talking about so the first thing I'd like to know is uh, what do you think a family is yeah I would identify a family as uh, a group of people who are connected to one another on sort of a life journey right and, and I think a part of family being a uh, Coming at different iterations, right? Like we may have what people consider um, a biological family or a chosen family, or some of the literature speaks about like fictive uh, kin, or all of these different ways to convey like people who hold value and meaning in another person's life. Um, so I think there are a lot of ways that that can uh, manifest itself. Hmm. Do you think that there is no longer a universal definition of family? I, I think in terms of the what is now often referred to as the nuclear family uh, in some contexts, like where there are, you know, two um, heterosexual cis-identifying male-female, uh, I think that idea of a family is uh, dated in the sense, right, and that if it's being held as sort of a universal family, yes, I think we've moved sort of beyond like this nuclear family idea. I think that family now is changing in that, for example, uh, children, right? Uh, uh, for a long time, like when the word family was mentioned, it almost always, you know, denoted children. You know, today, um, I refer to just myself then my partner as a family and we have a small doll it, she's a family right so it's like i think that really matters now uh, that we have no children and we're still a family so i think just when we think about like some of the uh the ways that language and identities have changed i think that sort of forces the issue where family uh is all like the, the context and dynamics of what constitutes a family would naturally fall soon Mm. Yes, um, my partner and I are in the similar situation where we don't want kids, um, but we've been together for a long time. We have a cat. We have a home together. Um, are we family? Are we not family? I think we're family, honestly, at this point. Um, so I'm glad to see that the definition of family does include that. I, I think so, at least. Uh, you know, that um, 
that it, it, it really has to be personal. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the position of family is in our society? Yeah, I think when I think of family, I think it really comes down to support and love. Um, I mm-hmm. think those are the two sort of tenets of a family, right? Like if I think about support, you know, that can be financial support, that can be, you know, sort of discipline as support, or that can be, you know, encouragement as support. You know, so I think the the ways that support means, uh, I, I think that's really key for family. I think the other piece of love, um, you know, like that's that's the thing about family that I think, like when I think of my family, yeah, I just think of a, a, a large number of people who love me. Yeah, you know, people mm-hmm. I can get on the phone and I can call them and we can talk and have a good conversation that we can just, you know, co- convey that sense of love to one another and, and not be ashamed about it, you know, to do it in a very open way, an honest way. Uh, I tell some of my best friends, I love you, you know, because I, to me, like I say that my best friend and they're my family, right? So it's mm-hmm. this sort of duality. Um, oh, that's lovely. Um, and so we're going to be talking about re-entry, but what is re-entry and how is it related to family? Yeah, that, that's the question, right? So re-entry, it, it can mean a lot of different things. I think about re-entry as a process, as the first point. Re-entry is the process of uh, going back into society post-prison, right? So that's the process of you know, going back into society post-prison is the first point. Uh, and I call it a process because there scholars have informed us that a prisonization process happens. I'm thinking especially of my comfort book, uh, right? Like being in prison changes people, right? This is, it, it shows up in many different ways. So in part, when a person has been in prison for such a long time or even a short time, the literature would suggest that they are still changed. So as they are now exiting prison, right, and uh, going back into their community, they're going back into the family. That is a, a, a process. So I think that that's the, the first part to start there. The second part of the question about its relation to family is what happens when people are, you know, forcibly removed and extracted from their families, from their communities. They're placed in a foreign land almost, right? Like in many cases, uh, prisoners or jails can be an hour away, two hours away um, from where a person resides. Like what does that have to do with family sort of, you know, connectivity, right? Or connectedness is a better word. Like what does that have to do with family connectedness, right? Like how do family bonds endure this process, right? Like do relationships even make it? If someone's getting five years, 10 years, how does that alter the family? If that person Mm. is the breadwinner and then they become incarcerated and now that breadwinner is no no longer there, like what does that do to the family? What, What happens to the, you know, resources that were poured into that family through this person. So I think it's a um, it's a direct relationship in terms of when a person uh, enters prison on the one hand and when a person leaves prison, where do they go, right? Like they've been incarcerated for X number of days, months, weeks, years. Um, like they're coming out oftentimes with no job, with no house. There are a lot of, you know, discriminatory laws and policies that prevent um, certain interactions in Illinois, where I live, it wasn't until recently that people were able to get a barber's license to cut hair if they had a criminal background. Like one of the things that maybe, you know, seemingly this uh, very trivial task to some people of cutting hair, right? And you couldn't do that for a long time. You had a criminal background. So like, where's the jobs? Where's the housing? 
Where's the resources and support? And in many cases, that comes from the family, right? Like part of my research is on sort of family blessings and family burdens, right? Like because it's a blessing to have this person back probably mm -hmm. after so much time. And it can be burdensome, right? Like now we mm -hmm. have to provide for this other person. We have to help this person get back on their feet, right? So. Mm. Okay, interesting. Lots, lots that I want to unpack. There's quite a few things there that I do want to unpack. But the first thing I'd like to know is you mentioned that there are some changes that people go through um, when they go into prison. Um, do you mind explaining maybe some, what some of those changes are? Absolutely. You know, so for example, uh, loss of autonomy, right? To be mm -hmm. told what time you have to eat, what time you have to go to sleep, you know, um, what you can do, right? A regulation of space where you can go, where you cannot go. So I think that's probably the most uh, pronounced change is this loss of autonomy that occurs in, in prison. And with that loss of autonomy, it's also a loss of time, right? And um, there is an excellent book by Professor Michael Walker called Indefinite, Joint Time in Jail, that sort of talks about some of these issues of what time is like while you're incarcerated. Um, and I think that is probably another piece. Like you, uh, many people may not know what time it is, how much time they have until said event. So they may be continuously counting down to a certain point. They may be waiting for something. Right there's this. The concept of time changes very drastically in prison. Where I can look at my clock and say it's six fifty-six p.m. Most people cannot do that at prison. Yeah, I guess I never thought about the fact that, yeah, I, you know, I have my phone. I'm always seeing what the time is. I always can situate myself within the time. And I, I guess I have my own rituals that I follow every day. I have lunch at 12 o'clock. I have my coffee at one o'clock. And if you can't see the time, it's very hard to situate yourself with what you're doing every day. And how, so how do those changes affect when you come back to the family, when you leave prison? Absolutely. I think going back to the uh, first point about the change of loss of autonomy. Now, mm -hmm. once a person is re-entering into society, uh, they have the ability to, you know, take control of their autonomy again, but not necessarily having the resources and tools, right? Like to know what to do, to know how to do it, to know where to go and these certain things, right? So it's this adjustment period sort of mm -hmm. in the reentry process where people are figuring things out. If you think, for example, someone who is incarcerated for 20 years, the types of technological advancements that can happen where now there's Zoom, you know, there are iPhones, there are all of these things that, you know, they weren't really in the works necessarily 20, 30 years ago. And it just takes uh, some time to get used to it. So you have to adjust to catch up with the time. I keep mentioning time a lot because I'm really fascinated by this concept that, again, I just let Dr. Michael Walker have, have mentioned and studied because um, I think it's a, it's a very important point. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so much has changed, you know, um, even between like five years that... Um, yeah, you leave for five years and everything can change so drastically. And so you also mentioned that the family changes as well. Um, sure. So what changes do they go through? Absolutely. I think, you know, what happens to if someone has a, a child, for example, and a lot of people we know who are incarcerated are also parents. You know, how many birthday parties, how many, you know, Christmas outings, all of these other types of holidays. The, the traditional markers and a parent-child dyad that has occurred. Um, like what happens to that child who's growing up? Uh, what might happen to a partner, 
to be without their significant other throughout this time. Um, so I think those types of changes can occur as well in, in terms of maybe this, you know, significant other is now trying to explore other life partners to go with. Maybe there's this type of emotional stressor of like, am I betraying this person who I've, you know, committed my life to or committed the time to, right? Think about the, you know, the people who are incarcerated, their parents, right? Like maybe their parents are sort of dealing with this sense of guilt or shame uh, from having their children to become incarcerated. Uh, so I think all of these changes can occur. I think it's not just limited to this, um, but it's it, it, it's an array of issues that, that just transpire. Mm-hmm. And so I, so all of these changes, they make it difficult for people to, um, yeah, come back home to re to re-enter into the house and into the home and into the family. So how does that play out? Yeah, I, I think that's such a good question. I think it's such a good question because everything that I know from the literature, from having conversations with people from working in certain, you know, research institutions about this, it is hard. You know, it is really hard for people when they're coming back uh, into society because they have been cast away. You know, uh, my mentor and advisor, uh, Dr. Ruben Jonathan Miller, uh, he, in his book, Halfway Home, he talks about and calls it the afterlife of incarceration. And he says that, you know, your your background, your record, it follows you, quote, like a ghost, right? So this is something you cannot get rid of. You can't shake it off you, right? This idea of carceral citizenship, where you're no longer just a regular citizen, but you're a citizen who's been confined by carceral spaces. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, so you were saying before that it stops you from being able to get a job or it can make it very hard to get a job. It can, so, so I mean, that means it's hard to, to earn money and to support your family. So you're relying on your family and that creates those stresses. Oops. Um, so what can people do to make, to make that transition easier? Is there something that people can do? Excellent question. Um, reentry coordinators are a thing in some spaces, right? Where people are specifically working uh, with incarcerated people who they know will be released in X number of uh, months or weeks. Uh, there's not enough funding, of course, for reentry coordinators. Uh, in fact, in many cases, the, those positions are getting cut more. I think also um, transitional uh, housing uh, is we need to bolster support um, for transitional housing, halfway homes, different uh, mission-driven nonprofits who are doing the work to help, uh, different religious organizations who are doing the work to help. Uh, they ha- it, it, it must be a multifaceted approach for mm. what is definitely a very intricate problem. Mm. So definitely governmental organizational and community support is is very much needed to help um with re-entry from incarceration absolutely you know i think mm-hmm. we hear the uh expression it takes a village to raise a child very often but i think that village must extend beyond children right it must extend to anyone who becomes in a predicament where they are now representing a marginalized identity uh, because mm-hmm. Anyone who occupies a marginalized identity uh, will need support and sort of getting closer to the center, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but what can families do? You know, your your mom or your dad, uh, brother or sister coming back. Um, maybe they're living in the same house as you. Maybe they're not. What can you do to sort of bring them back into the home and into the family? Yeah, I think one of the first things uh, is just you know, consistent visits. A lot of the mm-hmm. times, like family members may not be able to visit because of distance, time, or money. But I think as it gets closer to re-entry, just to have conversations with the person who will be re-entry about what they want 
uh, so often they're just left out of the picture entirely, right? Like mm-hmm. they, you know, they get uh, a consent of release and then the, they're sort of, you know, pushed beyond the prison or the jail gates and they're told, you know, good luck. That they're given gate money, which ranges, you know, in some places it's $20 US dollars, in some places it's $100. And they're told good luck, right? So I think like if family members are able to have those conversations, uh, while uh, folks are still incarcerated, to really mm-hmm. start planning and to really engage what they want out of the situation. That's the first step. And then to make a concrete plan, like, all right, this is sort of what the ask is. Like, what can we do to better establish that? And I think the employment piece is a really big part of it as well. As I mentioned earlier, like there are challenges um, at doing this. There's a long line of research, especially by uh, Dr. Pager and others who, you know, studied criminal backgrounds and sort of employment as a, uh, for a long time. So I think like being able to have those conversations as well, like what are you going to do once you're sort of out and you have your some sense of your freedom back, like what's sort of the next step? So to really have those conversations, to mm-hmm. engage what the ask is and, and then to with the concrete plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so after you've, you know, planned a little bit, um, you know, maybe they're planning to get a job, they've decided what they're going to be doing. Um, are there sort of any, you know, rituals that you can use, um, you know, maybe Christmases, um, family birthdays, family traditions um, that people can do to bring them back into the family or is is it not important? Well, I think it is important. And at least in my sort of research and having conversations with people, I say that because it's really important to have conversations with people who so often, you know, they don't have these conversations, but it can be overwhelming immediately once a person is released from prison, like just getting reacclimated to society and the hustle and bustle, the wooingness of it all. So I think just introducing um, the folks to it in a gradual process to, you know, bring them around uh, certain family members of friends and small gatherings, for example, like some folks I've talked to have said, like, I don't want a big welcome home card, right? Like, so that, you know, that could be, not, not to say that everyone may feel that way, but just to, I, I think it's important to really mm. ask, but I think to your other point in terms of the Christmases and, and birthdays, um, I think it, it will depend because that family dynamic has changed depending mm-hmm. on the time. Even if it's just been a couple of months, you know, there's something different. So I think like first getting reacclimated to the space and to the people and, and then being really um, careful in the thought process of, of like, what do I do at the level of involvement um, that, you know, formerly incarcerated people sort of want to have and the ritual and i think the last piece that i would probably add uh is like spirituality comes up for a lot of formerly incarcerated folks as well like they may want to not that everybody wants to go to church to send off suggesting but that people may have this type of practice that they have learned in prison whether that's meditation or whether it's yoga or whatever this type of um ritual is for you know their their individual self like to be able to do that mm-hmm. so yeah bringing in any rituals that they've developed um while incarcerated into the family life but also allowing them to um have some control over you know anything that they are doing with the family and allowing them to be reintroduced slowly so that they're not I guess overwhelmed by everything that's happening and um okay interesting and how how does this help with um reestablishing them in the family no I think part of the reestablishment process is to um you know sure up the fact that just because they were awake that they never stopped being part of the family, right? Like sometimes mm-hmm. distance can be equated with exclusion. Um, mm. So I think just to, you know, re-hone in on that fact, like, you know, you've never stopped being part of the family. And then I think in addition to that, also 
allowing them to slowly engage as I mentioned. I think that's that's really a key piece. Like there are so many family rituals that can just change um, over time. So I think it's really important just to know what the rituals are before they're really getting invested in the way mm-hmm. it is. Like even for example, you know, uh, a child's extracurricular activities, for example, could change very quickly where, you know, if someone's interested in soccer, <laughs> the you know, six months later, you know, they want to do karate, for example, mm-hmm. like just that practice of picking up and taking a child to soccer versus karate could mean something that's like very different. There's a different group of parents there. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, learning that you know particularly kids i guess their their hobbies and their interests change very quickly and so those rituals are also going to change very quickly because yeah one one minute you're watching um bluey with your kid and the next minute they're watching something else uh because you know it's been two years and they're no longer interested in bluey (laughs) Mm -hmm. um was there anything else that um you wanted to discuss um for this section um anything we haven't mentioned no, I, I think this is this has been a rigorous discussion. So thank you for that. Great, thank you, thank you. So I'll move on to the uh, practice debrief section. Um, so, what would you recommend to a family to improve their family rituals after a period of separation or absence? Yeah, in, in part, I would recommend um, just being honest with sort of each of the family members around expectations. Right, like there can be different demands of time being placed by the formerly incarcerated person, or even from you know, like an institutional level. Like if someone's on um, parole, like that could come with a very different set of expectations. Right, so I think everyone to be honest about their expectations is probably mm-hmm. uh, the first step of. Yeah, getting everyone on the same page. And then I think to actually have conversation about what's going on, like what are the family rituals, right? Not that that's going to sort of be the exact question, but like just to know like sort of what in this family has changed in in this absence, right? To be able to uh, engage one another in a meaningful way about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that the, the absence is significant, like I mentioned, for no matter what that period of time is. So uh, just being really clear about family rituals. Mm-hmm. And are there any challenges to this? Absolutely. I think that, <laughs> you know, there there could be instances where um, family members may not be fully uh, supportive of a returning uh, person. Um, and I think if that's the case, right, like that's also a conversation that needs to happen as well, especially if, you know, there's formerly incarcerated person who is in a living environment out of necessity, you know, so just say there's an example where, you know, John is released from ex prison and he's now living with his, you know, parents and he's not able to pay any rent, for example, because he doesn't have a job. And then there's his, his brother who lives there, you know, like Sam just says. So now Sam's like, oh, well, you're not, you're, you're just freeloading. You're getting over on mom and dad. Like you're, you, you, you know, that's going to create a dynamic where it's obviously a lot of high tension, high stress. It's not like John has anywhere else to go. That's just the nature of this. But right, like this is a type of family dynamic that may occur where people can, uh, be a little bit antagonistic uh, and not fully understanding of the s- situation, of the prisonization process that's occurred. And so I guess the only thing you could do in that situation is to just communicate that, um, you know, John is trying to get a job and trying to help, um, but um, just needs a bit more time maybe, I mean, and hope that that's enough. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the key parts of it. And I think just to, in some cases that may require outside help, if that's like a therapy session, maybe John's getting some therapy to deal with that 
maybe it's sound, maybe there's like group or family therapy. I think that, you know, there every family, of course, has gone to, you know, have its unique way of hand, handling the situation ahead. But I think just like being on some type of consensus about what's going on is mm-hmm. probably the best way to prevent any of those challenges. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so we've also got some audience questions. Um, so, um, and our first one is sort of related to this. Um, so what advice can you offer to families who may encounter setbacks or res- resistance during the process of reestablishing and maintaining family rituals? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first piece of advice that I would probably say, um, I think the first piece and advice that I would suggest is that the family really get together as a unit and be able to have these conversations and to have the conversations at an early point. Um, If these things fester, uh, it's likely just going to lead to problems getting uh, much worse and the issues that are sort of underlying becoming exacerbated. I think that when formerly incarcerated people are returning it to their homes, especially, like, they also need that autonomy. They need their own sort of way of doing things and to really uh, engage families about what's the best way to not feel, it, what's the best way to uh, provide the supports that are needed for a formerly incarcerated person and to not make them feel like a child, right, who's just mm-hmm. been you know, sort of giving things or let's just think burden. So where's that balance for family uh, between sort of support and autonomy? And also like, what is it that this sparling incarcerated person is missing? Like, what is it that they don't have access to that this family may be able to provide to help? Mm-hmm. And what happens if say Sam refuses to uh you know, join the discussion. They say, no, I don't want to. I think that this, that John should just find a job and move out without really listening to everything that John has to say and that um, is happening to him. Excellent question. And one instance that may just be a severed bond, right? Mm. Where John and Sal may be brothers biologically. They may no longer be family. Uh, So that could just, in one instance, become a severed bond. In another instance, you know, John could really feel pressured to move out at this mm. point. Maybe John is now searching uh, for a halfway goal. Uh, in some instances, you know, almost upwards of 20% of people who re, uh, return from prisons and jails can become homeless or temporarily unhoused, right? So maybe even in the worst scenario, John is now actually temporarily unhoused. And that, of course, uh, in this situation would, would be a real disaster in the sense that it could have been prevented. But in many cases, it's not that people who were formerly incarcerated and now are temporarily unhoused. It's not that they didn't have any family at all, right? It, it could be this type of antagonistic relationship with their family members that may have you know, contributed them to say, well, I would just rather be on my own where I don't mm-hmm. have to be under anyone's roof. I don't have to listen to them sort of, you know, bad mouth me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So very complex situations though. Um, and obviously you don't want that to happen, but I guess every family is different and every family is going to have different reactions to everything and you can't, I guess, you can try as much as possible to to stop the antagonism, but um, sometimes I guess that's going to happen, right? Mm. So our second question from the question from the audience is how to deal with different expectations and emotions surrounding the entry process, uh, re-entry process, and rebuilding family rituals. 
Yeah, this is an excellent question. I, I, I didn't even know this question was coming from the start, but I was talking about uh, just expectations earlier. I think expectations are so important, um, especially in the re-entry process. And mm -hmm. having those expectations early make a really big deal. Because, for example, if a person is considering multiple options as to where they live, upon re-entering, like having those expectations, for example, just say that a person is on electronic monitoring. They're going to be home every day, right? So like, what does that mean? Well, maybe for one family, it's like, I'm tired of seeing you every day, right? Where maybe a different family in a different sort of household will welcome that person to be home every day. So I think the expectation conversation it's really important. And I think to say, how are these expectations being managed, right? Like if these expectations are established at the very, you know, sort of forefront of the reentry process, that is a sort of covenant. It's an agreement to live by these expectations and to also have conversations where, you know, even from the side of the formerly incarcerated person, like, you know, you assured me of X, Y, and Z, but what can we do to make sure that you're also being able to, um, you know, provide me with sort of what I need in this process? Mm -hmm. And from the reverse as well, like what might this formerly incarcerated person, John, just say, like, be able to do for the family that he's sort of willing to work in that situation uh, as well? Maybe that means like actively searching for a job if that's mm -hmm. one of the requirements. Like, well, how, how does that look? Does that mean that I'm applying to 10 jobs a day? Or does that mean that I am going to school to get my, you know, GED so that way I can become more eligible for a job? Like, those are very different scenarios, mm -hmm. you know, that would mean different things, right? Where if I'm actively applying for a job every day, you know, and I just do a job that doesn't require any type of GD or high school diploma, you know, maybe it's not the best paying job, for example, but maybe I can get a slightly better job with the GED, but maybe that takes, you know, one year to get the GED. Like those are very different expectations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, communicating those expectations so that no one's surprised or, um, um, annoyed by what whatever what everyone else in the household is doing. And the second point to the communicating, I think that's absolutely right. Also adhering to those expectations and sort mm. of, you know, allowing those expectations to, you know, be a, a covenant or agreement so that way people mm. can be moved back and forth between those expectations. Okay, okay. Um, so our last question is, um, can you use the same principles with your found family rather than with biological family? I absolutely think so. You know, in, in, in my mind, like, at least for myself, uh, I, I don't use the word family loosely, right? Like if I'm calling someone family, I mean this, you know, from the bottom of my heart and I, I don't see, um, a distinction between found family or chosen family uh, or, you know, with biological family. I think that that's from a, a sort of uh, lived and emotional perspective. I think that, you know, there are different legal parameters in some cases with biological family. I'm especially thinking about, you know, sort of um, this conversation has largely been about, you know, sort of adults re-entering, but there's also the other spectrum you know, for um, when younger people become detained or incarcerated, you know, in juvenile legal systems, uh, and they have maybe spent X amount of time away, right? Like that's sort of on the other spectrum. And I think in those cases, there are these types of legal expectations of, you know, guardianship um, that, a, you know, a, a legal parent has to, or, or a legal guardian must adhere to like, you know, adequately providing for this person and those sort of things where I would say maybe that's one exception uh, to like the biological versus sort of the foul that drove it. 
Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, thank you. Was there anything else that you um, wanted to discuss or we'll move on to the open mic? The, the only piece that I think that I would add is just to say that, um, you know, we, of course, do not live in a, a perfect world uh, and the how we got to the prison system initially, I guess this is sort of open mic. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, why don't I um, introduce the open mic and then we'll discuss this. Perfect. Okay. So our next section is the open mic, and that's where you, the guest, uh, get to talk about something that you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be related to the topic, but it can be related to the topic if you want it to be. So what did you have in mind for today? Thank you for that. I, my, my, my open mic uh, contribution is sort of what comes next, like what comes after prison. Uh, mm -hmm. and I just want to talk a little bit. I won't, I won't go on forever. But when we think about this, you know, prison and its current, um, you know, just state was the reform, right? Like uh, prior to this, prior to the conceptualization of the prison, you know, people were just being beheaded, you know, at the, you know, request of the, the monarch, right? And so, so, you know, there's this, this, um, this campaign to say like, well, we should do something other than simply behead and execute people. We should think of something different. So, and we, and we get the prison, right? Which seems like a massive improvement from the beheading process. And in many cases at that time, I'm sure it was. And now we also get the prison that we have today, which, you know, in America, it's so many people are uh, incarcerated, are detained, you know, 600,000 people are re-entering from prisons, from jails each year in this country. We are the world's largest jailer of uh, both adults and young people. And this is no longer the 1970s case of rehabilitation that, you know, we were, uh, uh, as a society, you know, forced into believing and that somehow sending people to prison, you know, incarcerating them would allow them to become uh, reformed citizens to become, you know, better citizens, this rehabilitation model, which we now would say is debunked. And instead, the, the prisons in many cases have become uh, a, a facet of incapacitation where people are simply held in prisons, where people who we are tired of seeing, tired of looking at, tired of wanting to exist. And we know this to be the case because of how many people are poor people, how many people are black people uh, who are being sent away into prison. So I think just to really take some time to think about all of the uh, disparities that exist within prisons, that black people are five times more likely to become incarcerated than their white counterparts, for example, to think about all of these things and to say, like, how is it that we can reimagine what it means to have accountability, what it means to have public safety, and to live in a just society where we are not uh, permanently punishing people. Like mm -hmm. when does, you know, when does that punishment end? And based on this system, we know that well into the reentry process, people are still endeavoring and enduring the consequences of their incarceration. Mm -hmm. So what types of steps do you think that, um, you know, the government um, people can make to the system? Um, obviously, it's a huge topic, and I'm sure that it could cover so many podcasts, um, far more than, than just today. But I mean, maybe just one or two, um, or the big ones, I don't know. Absolutely. I think decarceration is probably the first point, right? Decarceration in the sense of how can we get as many people out of prisons and jails as possible, right? Mm -hmm. During COVID, for example, we saw 
many different types of decarceration efforts, largely around older adults, for example. Like, what does that look like for someone who's, you know, 75 years old to be in prison? Like, you know, what are the chances? I'm not saying that they're not existent, but what are the chances of these 75-year-old incarcerated people uh, who may have a litany of health issues committing these types of crimes, right? That's sort of one population, for example. Nonviolent offenders is something that comes up in many cases. Like, what does that look like uh, for those who have, you know, uh, drug use charges, right, to actually get treatment and to receive care and not incarceration, treatment and care and not incarceration, right? Like, what does that look like in terms of the uh the sort of those who've been charged with drug drug crimes, and uh, also the supports from the government, I think are, are are very key to the second point. Right, the way that prisons and jails and Americas are, they are these the even the physical structures are not conducive to rehabilitation. Right, like these are massive buildings with barbed wire gates and, um, you know, constant surveillance, right? Where we look at other types of prison structures, like for example, in New Zealand, uh, where the prison, the the literal uh, structure of the prison is very different, where there are open spaces, where there are accessible books, where there are, you know, um, engagement with the, you know, facility staff, right? It's not this, you know, um, animus between correctional guards and those who are incarcerated, where it's more of a almost collegial relationship. So I think that's a large part of it is decarceration and sort of government support and structure to like doing a new thing. We know this is not working. Because nothing uh, in terms of the crime rates are not improving, recidivism rates are high. So, right, this leads us to uh, conceptualize something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that about New Zealand prisons. Um, yeah, um, and I, I mean, I don't have much experience with prisons in general, and especially um, in the U.S. because I'm not in the U.S. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, interesting. There's, yeah, uh, let me have a think about what I want to say. Um, there's certainly a lot to, to think about there, I think. Um, the fact that it's it's not working um, and something needs to change. Um, yeah, there's that that's certainly um that's certainly showing us you know that it's it's not working and we should change something um i don't have much more to say than that actually <laughs> so um thank you so much for talking to me today tj um if people do want to find out more about you um where should they go yeah it was such a pleasure thank you for having me uh, i hope to come back again if i didn't uh you know fed too many people um <laughs> And yeah, I can be found uh, via Twitter. Uh, my name on Twitter is uh, at Toyan Harper. So that's T-O-Y-A-N-H-A-R-P-E-R. And also uh, my email is tjharper at newchicago.edu, where I'd be more than happy to uh, engage in dialogue. Great. And um, thank you. We'll put those in the show notes so people can find them easily. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a very interesting conversation. Um, And even though I'm um, overwhelmed, I think, with thoughts. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.